Father, thank you so much for an awesome day. We're gathered here. We want to learn more about your word and the topic today and pray that you would impress your truth upon our spirits and that, God, that we would be able to walk not only in the knowledge of your word, but in the power of your spirit. Help us to walk this out. God, you've given us power and authority over all the, the power of the enemy. And I'm asking you, Father, that you would instruct us, encourage us through this, uh, that there would be no fear as we talk about demons, but that we would understand our place in your kingdom as having authority and power, because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So encourage us through your word today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I've got a question for you. Most of us, here's a realization, most of us, most Christians, understand demons and demon possession, and I'm going to use that word just momentarily, um, based on what Hollywood has taught us. So here's my question, what has Hollywood taught us? Some of you have seen some of the movies. I truly have not. Um, I have seen something about something Rose. Emily Emily Rose. Okay. And uh, yes, I watched it because it was based on true events. And I wanted to see how Hollywood handled it. And there were a lot of uh, ways in which I thought, okay, that's very interesting in how they handled it. And... um, but what, what kind of things do you see in these movies, if you've seen any of them? Raise your hand, just share. Okay. I know in that particular movie, does the demon never comes out, does it? Or they have a hard time? It depends on what movie you're watching. I have no clue. Yeah, I know of Emily Rose. Yeah. I think it, it turns out that like that's supposed to be her like, thorn or something. Oh, I can't remember. So you're coming. But I have seen movies where, like, they like The Exorcist. I mean, I saw that when I was a little girl. Okay. Happy birthday! All right. So here's my question: How do these demons? How are these demons cast out? What do they do? Holy water. Okay, a priest. Holy water. Holy water. Sprinkle holy water. A cross holding a cross up to them, and they freak out. I'm sorry. Witchcraft. Okay, what, what movie would that be? I think it's The Exorcist. The Exorcist, they cast the demon out, come out in Jesus' name? Interesting. I don't think they say in Jesus' no. name. Uh, no, no, no. That's they just say they come out. Okay. Other things? In Exorcism of Emily Rose, wasn't there like a dream about the Virgin Mary or something? Yeah. I know okay. he kept on using the Virgin it is a, Mary. It is from a, a Catholic perspective, so yes. He hardly ever used Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so they will use um, like incantation type of things, yes. you know, wording things a certain way. They will use objects, uh, water, a cross. Um, does anybody know what poltergeist is? Yes. Okay, and what is a poltergeist? It's like a ghost. Okay, and. <laughs> What, what is it that the poltergeist does? Wreaks havoc. Okay, so it does stuff. It moves things. Okay. All right. It tries to do that to harm. Okay. Um, educate me a little bit more about what Hollywood has said. How Hollywood has educated you. Hollywood says that the poltergeist is doing evil things because they want some kind of retribution. They want okay. some kind of justice. Somehow, like, they were wrongfully murdered, or they were wronged in some way in their life. Right. And so they're trying to 
get in their lifetime. So if a bad person dies, they become a poltergeist. Yeah, it's usually in a specific yeah. place. They don't seem to move around. Okay, right. and it is common in Hollywood to depict <coughs> people's spirits once the person dies, either becoming an angel or a demon or wandering the earth um, with chains, as we see in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Um, a lot of stuff I enjoy about that. Uh, I almost said movie, sorry, book. Uh, but a lot of stuff is just completely fabricated and contrary to the Word of God. Well, I was just talking um, about So you just take it with a grain of salt. Because a lot of, they'll uh-huh, say okay. that ghosts are human spirits. <clears throat> yes, okay. All right. Anything else before we move on? Yes. I'm just curious why the Catholic Church seems to have a lock on exorcism and... <laughs> Other religions don't even talk about that. Good question, because there is... I'm not going to... I'm going to just use the word general. Generally speaking, up until the last hundred years, the evangelical church has dismissed... uh, And again, generally speaking, has dismissed the concept of demons. That Jesus, F.F. Bruce, for example, a very well-known theologian... Um, has written a book, and I remember doing a paper in seminary on demonization, and and you notice I'm using the word demonization instead of demon possession, and I'll explain why in a little while. But his explanation was that uh, Jesus accommodated to the views of the Jewish people of his day. There were no demons, but when someone had a seizure, since they believed he had a demon, Jesus cast the demon out, but really Jesus healed him. And so that's called the accommodation view. F.F. Bruce held to that. A lot of evangelicals have done that, and they've dismissed this idea of demons. But we see this concept of demons in the Word of God, and it is not to accommodate the view of man. That's really dangerous thinking, because we could end up doing that with almost anything in the Bible. We open a door that you do not want opened, because it can veer off into wrong theology all the time. And Paul. Jesus never had a history of doing accommodating anything. He always spoke the right. truth. This theory that. is based on Moses or God uh, through Moses accommodating to the people's desire for divorce, so he allowed it. And but even Jesus said Moses allowed you. And so Jesus addressed the issue. <laughs> Jesus didn't live in a fantasy world. He didn't pretend. He dealt with reality. Reality is both spiritual and physical. Okay? Um, Do you have time to talk about the, why Bruce, how Bruce explained the Legion and the pigs going off the cliff? Um, I can't remember how he addresses that. I'm sure he does in his book. All right. But I'll be honest with you. I thought to myself, did I get a hold of some liberal book? Because I, I wasn't familiar at the time. This is back in my 20s. I wasn't familiar with F.F. F. Bruce. But then came to realize, oh my goodness, I have commentaries by F.F. F. Bruce. And I didn't realize it. Um, he's the editor of a, a, a very good conservative commentary series. And, and I have that commentary series. I, I have appreciated a lot of what F.F. F. Bruce, Bruce has said. It's just that as any theologian, uh, he does come from the, a brethren background. And so he's going to tend to dismiss certain things, like spirit, certain spiritual gifts and, and 
baptism with the Spirit, just defining it differently. And so, okay, theologians will do this. I, I just very strongly disagree with this. And so I would venture to say this is probably the main reason. Uh, but in the last hundred years, especially as missionaries have ministered uh, on the, the mission field, they have seen this and been confronted with reality to not only realize that demonization or as King James says, demon possession, is a reality. Demons are real. They've experienced it and can explain it no other way, especially when you're confronting um, a, uh, a witch doctor and, and such, and dealing with someone who is totally immersed in the occult. But there are, there are miracles that happen on the mission field. There are phenomenal, there are people raised from the dead. And these types of people, which again, an evangelical view, more from the past than in the last hundred years, would say that prophecy is done away with, God doesn't do miracles anymore, at least through people. We can pray and God can heal, uh, but there's no laying on of hands. God doesn't use humans as agents. God doesn't use humans as agents for miracles. And so a number of spiritual gifts that we'll talk about in a few weeks, uh, actually more in a few months, <clears throat> but they hold to a cessationist view. When you go on the mission field, you will not hold to a cessationist view. You can't. It, it is At least if you are on the cusp of evangelizing third world countries, because many of them are immersed in the occult, and you will see counterfeit miracles, and you will see demonization, and it's very clear you can't explain it any other way. Um, let me move on. Um, we're going to talk about demonization, and if you were to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verse 36, you will see, um, you will begin to appreciate, you won't see, but you'll begin to appreciate why I'm using this term, uh, demonization, instead of demon possession. Um, <clears throat> and the, well, I guess you will see it. My bad. Luke 8.36, it says, those who had seen it... Now, this is the gathering demoniac. We're going to come back to this passage shortly, but uh, where was it again? Those who had seen it, that is, the demons come out, go into the pigs, they rush down the hill, into the water, died. And now the man is dressed, um, I guess they put clothes on him, he's in his right mind. Uh, those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. And some would look at that and say, see, the term demon possession is a biblical term. But the Greek word that's used here is this one right here. Daimoni... Sorry. Nizomai. <coughs> Daimonizomai. Uh, daimon is the word for demon. Daimonizomai simply means having a demon. The term demon possession, I am personally willing to accept if you understand it this way. A man can have or possess a demon, but a demon can never possess a man. Do I need to say that again? Yes, please. Okay, a man can possess or have a demon, but a demon can never possess a man. Scripture never says that a demon had a man. It will always say a man had a demon. The word possess in our minds, in the English language, tells us ownership. To possess something means you have it and you own it. Now, 
Let's understand that if we're going to talk about demon possession in the sense that people are owned, then let's use different scripture verses other than this one, such as 2 Timothy 2.26 that talks about um, Satan controlling, we're in his snare, um, that uh, the God of this age, uh, pretty much he owns them, they are his, they belong to him. John 8, you belong to your father, uh, uh, the devil, who's the father of lies. Um, Abraham is not your father, the devil is. I mean, Jesus didn't mince his words. But you belong to him. You are owned by him. Those who are not under the covenant of Christ are owned by Satan. They belong to his domain or his dominion, his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. So I don't have a problem with us understanding that the world is, the people of the world are owned by Satan. He, he possesses them in that sense. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a demon owning a man, and you never see scripture speaking of that. You always see of a, or you never see of a demon, and the other way to understand uh, a demon, demon possession, possessing, meaning uh, having, it's either ownership or having or both. You never hear of a demon having a man. It's always daimonizomai, um, or the man had, and it's the word had, not owned, a man had an unclean spirit, or a demon. All right. So I'm okay with demon possession, as long as you understand it to mean a man has a demon. That's it. Ownership is not in the equation here at all. If you want to talk about ownership, look at other scripture passages, fine, but not when we're talking about demonization. So this man was not... The, the demon, demon possession that's used here is this Greek word, daimonizomai, and it means having a demon. And there are many scripture passages. Let's understand this concept of having a demon is not just specific for, for the Gadarene demoniac. To, I'm going to equate demonization with having a demon. Okay? So let me do that up here. Daimonizomai equals having a demon. What did you say the last half of the word now? Of Daimonizomai? That's just a verb form. If, if, if we were to transliterate it, take the Greek letters and transpose them into English letters, it would read demonized. So that's why I talk about being demonized rather than demon possession. It's a far more accurate term. Um, it allows us to apply our definition that we see in Scripture, not ownership, but simply having. Now, do you understand what I'm, when I'm talking about demonization? Okay. And, and for that reason, many people will say, well, before I get to that, let me just say this. Demonization is not necessarily that the demon fully, completely, totally controls the person so that they always foam at the mouth and they have seizures and they break chains and they have superhuman strength that they're blind or deaf or lame or asthma. In my own encounter with demonization, I have seen demons inflict people with asthma. When they were set free, their asthma was gone. And as I have kept track with them for many years, asthma has never come back. They were healed at that very moment. Why? Because the demon came back or, or, or came out and they were healed. Um, Luke talks about a man who is <coughs> deaf and mute. And he says that Jesus cast the demon out. And in Matthew 12, 
the Matthew says that Jesus healed him. So, of course, F.F. F. Bruce gets a lot of mileage out of that to try and make it very natural and having nothing to do with the demon. But what we need to understand is demons can cause physical afflictions, okay? The woman with the bent back for 18 years, Jesus healed her and the demon came out. All right? So demons can cause physical ailments, but that is usually, usually a side issue, more a symptom. His goal there is to control. So I'm going to use this term, having a demon... Um, and I'm going to put controlling. <coughs> controlling is a continuum from minor controlling to extreme control. In Luke 8, this man was extremely controlled. He lived among the graves. He cut himself. He would shriek, yell, Uh, He could not be imprisoned or bound with chains. He would break them. Uh, He was naked, so he would tear his clothes. That's why he's dressed and in his right mind. We see a drastic shift to normalization. The man now wants to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I want you to go tell people back in your town what, what the Lord has done for you. Question. Um, this is slightly off topic, but I'm still concerned. Casadega has a reputation. Yes, and it does. I, I don't like going there. Are we vulnerable just by going to that location? Uh, hold on to that question. Okay. I, I hope that I'm going to be able to address that, but that's going to be more in the application realm. I want to lay uh, a little bit more theology down before we uh, before I fairly answer that. Um, the truth is, wherever you are, there are demons, okay? It doesn't matter. Demons can be in our home, okay? Now, can I say this, though? God protects his own. I, during this talk, as we talk about demons, understand that we talked about angels last week. It is very possible, if not probable, that in Job 1, Satan was saying, if you remove the hedge of protection around Job, then I'll be able to... Do this, that, or the other. He killed his children and his livestock. He became, it, it appears that he became poor overnight and lost his family, except his beloved wife. And, sorry, I said that rather sarcastically, didn't I? I'm sure God got a hold of her heart. Um, but, I, and I'm sure I am, I'm treating this too lightly because when you lose all ten of your children, Wow, what a tragedy. So I'm sure that Job's wife was a godly woman and she is just so deeply uh, hurt uh, by all of this and wondering what's going on and what God, why did you do this? And and so I I understand that. Um, So where was I now? Um, Hedge of protection. Thank you. And I I would have no qualms whatsoever with understanding that hedge of protection being one of two things. And well, I would have no problem with understanding it being angels that God encamps about His people to protect them. So that is in Psalms, and it may very well have been the case for Job, or is simply the power of God. However, we want to see it. But let's understand also that angels are here to serve the heirs of salvation. 
And so to understand that as angels encamped about a home, a person, totally biblical concept. So I, I don't want us, as we go through this and, uh, and kind of scrutinize, that we are filled with fear, because greater is he that is in us than he that is yes. in the world. Okay? Yes. And so he that is in the world is not just Satan, but all his minions. All right? Uh, and I'm going to venture to say this. Even though we may rebuke Satan in Jesus' name, rarely, if ever, will you personally deal with Satan. Okay? Because Satan is not omnipresent. Meaning he cannot be in more than two places at one time. The Holy Spirit can. More than, more than one place at a time. Thank you. He cannot be at two, in two places at one time. I've heard of him. So, thank you, Donald. I appreciate that. Came to my rescue. Um, let, let me... I know that this is going to stir up a lot of questions. So if you can hold to your questions, write them down. Okay? And if at the end I don't answer your questions, then ask them at the end. And I'm going to try and reserve some time. We do have a lot of material to go through. So let me do that. <clears throat> but uh, did I answer the question when I started talking about Yes. Okay. Lord, give me a focus here. All right, so up on the board here, I have the heavenlies. The heavenlies is not a place. It is a spiritual realm. Because both angels and demons live in, this, in the heavenlies. Okay? We also saw in 2 Peter 2.4 that God did not spare the sinning angels, but consigned them to Tartarus. They describe Tartarus as uh, a, a place, and I say that in quotes, place of torment, of uh, agony, punishment, being reserved for the day of judgment. Tartarus, the reason why I do not believe that Tartarus is a locale or a specific place like heaven and hell. And again, heavenlies is not heaven. Heaven is in the heavenlies. <clears throat> um, and by heaven, I mean the throne room of God. I could probably do this and, uh, and call this heaven. Uh, our theology does not talk about what's in between. Some have used the concept of the second heaven, I, I, I don't necessarily agree that that second heaven is what exists between uh, heaven and earth or Tartarus or anything like this. All my point is Tartarus is not a specific locale. We know this because if God did not spare the sinning angels, and we're not talking about two groups, those that fell before man fell and Genesis 6, um, and people who interpret the sons of God as being angels, they fell because they married the daughters of men. Uh, whatever view you take on that, we cannot say that it's the Genesis 6 fallen angels that are in Tartarus. Because the Bible says God didn't spare sinning angels. Which means there are no angels that when they fell, God spared. He punished all of them. All demons are in Tartarus. Tartarus, in Tartarus, they can tempt people, accuse people, they can demonize. This does not sound like a locale that they are locked in, okay? Because they can't get out of it. Demons cannot get out of Tartarus, alright? So when we're going to look at the term abyss, let's understand that the abyss is going to be part of Tartarus. It's not going to be outside of Tartarus, okay? And it, and so, consequently, the abyss is not a place. That's very important, 
We're gonna, I'm going to jump into that in just a, a second here. As we look at Matthew 12.43, and you can turn there in your Bibles, Matthew 12.43, I quoted this passage last week and uh, addressed this, so I'm only going to do so in a cursory fashion this morning. It says, in Matthew 12.43, when an evil spirit comes out of a man, the reason why he was in the man was because he was demonizing him, and this is the context of what we're looking at. Uh, a man was demonized. Um, that would be Matthew twelve twenty two. Sorry, these numbers are so tiny in my, my Bible. Then they brought him a demon-possessed or demonized man. So when an evil spirit comes out of a man, that is, he has been exorcised or he has been cast out, it goes through arid places seeking rest. So that's why I have this right here under Tartarus, this area here, labeled as arid places. There apparently are two places for demons to be, either in a man or in arid places. Now, can you see this? All right? Because when he comes out of a man, there is only one place that he goes in Tartarus, and that is the arid places. Now, this is a way of describing the torment, arid meaning no water. When the man was in Luke 16, the rich man was in Hades. What did he request? That Lazarus put his finger in water and touch it on his tongue. And this gives us the idea of uh, aridity or, or dehydration or you know, pain, fire, torment. And so this concept of arid places or waterless places gives us the same concept as well. Um, so he's wandering through these arid places, and what is the demon seeking? Rest. Okay, I'm going to write this word rest up here. And Stephen Policastro, you'll forgive me for writing in red. Um, but red is fine, it's just a green, huh? Let's get rid of green. Okay. You're saying that the only places it can be is in a man and in Tartarus? Well, no, they're always in Tartarus. They can either be, because when they're in a man, they're still in the spirit realm. Oh, I see. Okay? But there is a, uh, a human physical connection, association. Um, they are there because they desire to control, and they find rest. Now, again, by rest, we talked about last week, that doesn't mean they're, they're not being punished anymore. So, because while they're in Tartarus, Peter tells us, they're in agony. So the best way to understand demonization and its association with rest is that there's less agony. Okay? And, and I'm going to submit this to you, and I'm going to encourage you that if you, under, if you can understand it in a different way, please, by all means, as you study the Scriptures, <coughs> speak to me about it. I'd love to know. But in my study of Scripture, these, these are the only two places that Scripture says that exist within Tartarus. The arid places and the demon demonizing a man. He finds some measure of rest. Write your question down. Some measure of rest. And in finding that some measure of rest, where is that? He goes back to the man that he once demonized, and he finds it unoccupied. So the truth does not abide in this man. On the surface, he's been cleaned up. But he is still empty, and there is no... We, I, I want to be careful here because the theology of the indwelling spirit is not developed in Matthew. But that now, 
from our hindsight, having all of the New Testament, that's what we would say. Christ does not live in this man. The truth of Christ does not rule in this man. And so he is open to demonization. So the demon comes back with seven worse demons. So let me just say this, that there are levels of demons. Okay, There are some that afflict man, torment man mildly, and some that torment men uh, voraciously or um, uh, extensively. So there are levels of wickedness with, within the demonic realm. Okay, We're going to look at one in Mark 9 where Jesus talks about this type of demon. And you know, what would that suggest? So he, he finds rest in the man. He was cast out to the arid places, now he's back. Now let's look at a passage in Luke chapter 8. We were just in Luke 8. Again, this is the gathering demoniac. And Jesus is dealing with this demoniac. Uh, this de- these, these demons. Um, he requests the demon's name. The demon's name is what? Legion. Legion um, which is a term for 6,000 Roman soldiers. Uh, is he being very literal here that there are 6,000 demons? We don't know. I would venture to say there are at least 2,000 because that's how many pigs there were. Um, so I'd rather not argue over whether there were exactly six demons. So therefore, three demons per pig, if you do the math right... Yeah, I don't want to go there. But what I do want us to realize is there's a hierarchy of demons in this man. There is one demon. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. So he is speaking on behalf of the other demons in this man. So I would venture to say it's perhaps for this reason that the man has supernatural strength, uh, because you're not just dealing with one lame demon um, or one weak demon. All right, you are dealing with many demons. Um, here, as Jesus attempts... Well, I want to be careful. Let, let me use that word. Jesus attempts to cast this demon out. Oh, he begins. Let me word it that way. I like that word better. Jesus begins to cast this demon out. The demon does not come out right away, does it? It actually says here, um, in verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. And then it describes what the demon has done. Jesus asks him, What is your name? Verse 30, and he says, Legion, because many demons have gone into, had gone into him and they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. The abyss. King James says the deep. That's, that's a, a little bit archaic. And by archaic, I mean Old Testamentish. Um, and how the Old Testament used that term. At, at least the Septuagint. Um, the abyss, abusos, the Greek word, um, is used here. The abyss. The abyss is not used a lot in the New Testament. And... So here's what I'm going to do. If the demons are in the man and are requesting, don't send us to the abyss, should we view the abyss now as a specific place within Tartarus that is locked and the demons can't get out? 
they might constitute part of the arid places, but now they're locked in it. Here's my problem with this. If this were the case, so that the demon would never be able to get out of tar excuse me, never be able to get out of the abyss and thereby possess mankind again, why doesn't Jesus command his disciples or teach them whenever you cast a demon out, make sure you send them to the abyss. Otherwise, they're going to wander in arid places and they could demonize people again. And we wouldn't want that. So make sure you send them to the abyss because that way they're locked in there and they'll never be able to get out to torment mankind again. Jesus never, ever teaches this. There's not even a, little, a hint at that teaching. Okay? Not only does Jesus not teach his disciples to do this, we never hear Jesus commanding demons to come out and go into the abyss. He always commands them to come out. And it would be natural if they come out to do what? To go back into the arid places. So instead of us understanding the abyss this way, it would be better to understand that this right here, the arid places, is the abyss. And again, I'm going to do it this way. Instead of a, a line, I'm going to draw a squiggly line between the arid places and demonization because demons can go back and forth between them. I am going to suggest this, that how they do this is by man yielding authority to them. Okay? Man yielding authority to them. Or somehow they, the demons, have authority to, to do this. Um, the world pledging their allegiance to Satan by their actions. Not by dabbling in the occult necessarily, but simply by their sinful actions held captive to sin. They now serve Satan and his in his dominion of darkness. Okay, so I'm a squiggly line there, and I'm going to put here that this seems to be, the line here seems to be this idea of authority, and we're going to, if we have time, I really hope we can get more into that idea of authority, because that's really going to be where the application lies. So, do you understand this here? And so they can come out of the abyss and demonize uh, through some measure of authority. The Bible does not explain that concept of authority thoroughly, but we see hints of it, and hopefully we can look at some of that. But aren't they always in the arid places anyway? Uh, when they demonize a man, they are not in the arid places. Okay, They are in the arid places seeking rest, which tells me that when they find rest, by demonizing a man, they are no longer in the arid places. But they are still in Tartarus. But they are always, always in Tartarus. Okay? Now let me ask you, do you have any questions about this so far? Maria? Um, in regards to all of that, this is not, I mean, it's not in here, so we're just coming up with this, thinking this is the way it should be. Okay, good question. Because Let's. it's not specific, and... You know, that's we, there are a few assumptions that I have thrown in here. Okay. And I'm open to assumptions that would fit the scriptural text. It's just that I haven't found any. The best one that people offer is that the abyss is a location and that they, the demons can't get out of it. And again, my problem with that is that 
scripture doesn't hint at that. It does hint at what I'm saying, but it doesn't hit, hint at the abyss being a location that demons can't get out of or go back and forth. They can't do that, but they are locked in that abyss because if that's the case, then Jesus should teach us somewhere, make sure when you cast out a demon, you send them to the abyss. Now, I, I need to move on. Let's, taste, test this, let's test this theory, if you will. Okay? And my theory is that if, if demons come out of the abyss... The only place they can go is to demonize mankind. That's that's my theory. That's and I believe that the scripture holds holds that up. So let's test that. The word abyss is used rarely in the Bible. Um, it's used in Romans nine, but that's excuse me ten, but that's a quote from the Old Testament Septuagint using the word abyss, meaning the deep. And the NIV reflects that. It doesn't translate it abyss. It uses it in Revelation. So let's. <clears throat> it actually uses it in Revelation 9 and Revelation 20. This is when Satan is locked in the 20. Satan is locked in the abyss, so he cannot deceive the nations anymore. I am not going to tackle Revelation 20 until we get to the idea of the millennium, which will be many months down the road. But what I'm going to share with you right now has implications for this. So I'm kind of laying a foundation for the abyss so that when we come to Revelation 20, we'll understand it better. Let's test our theory. Let's turn to Romans, excuse me, Revelation 9. If indeed there are two places in Tartarus that when one leaves the arid places or the abyss, it is only so that they can demonize. I apologize. Well, no, I, I, I will read it. That's probably going to be, be the best way. Again, write down your questions because I have to blow through this. Again, we're only testing this, and this is this is kind of facty. There is some speculation, but as I've studied it, I'm, I'm not seeing how all of these scripture passages, when you put them together like a puzzle piece, can demonstrate or show something different than this. Okay, I am open to it. We're now going to test it. But I'm only going to take a minute here to do that, okay? But the fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that, that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The Romans, excuse me, help me, Revelation, not Romans, Revelation 12 speaks of a star that was in the heavens, and that was, uh, that was the dragon, the stars. He took a third of the stars out of the sky, or heaven. This is the word heaven, not sky, um, in the Greek, uranios. And this, I'm going to just tell you, I'm going to cut to the chase, and with my interpretation here, we're talking about Satan right here, or, or, or at least a fallen angel, okay? The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. I want you to test this. The concept of a key in the book of Revelation is equated with authority. You'll see that in Revelation 1, as it's applied in Revelation 3, in, uh, in a letter, um, it's a description. Jesus has the key to death and Hades. He has authority with regard to death and Hades. Um, he can open a door that he wants to open and close a door. That's in the letter in Revelation 3. Um, it's because he has the key of David. It's a reflection back to the description of, of Revelation 1. Key is also used in Revelation 20. It represents Authority. It's not a literal key here. We're not talking about a literal star. We're not talking about a literal key. There are those who say that they pride themselves in interpreting Revelation 
very literally can I say there is nobody ever whoever lived who interprets Revelation literally okay nobody they all translate it symbolically it's just that to what degree do they do we translate it literally to what degree do we translate it symbolically but no one that I know of translates the understands the beast as a literal beast that walks around the earth talks in human language and etc etc it's always a man or a system or what have you uh, but it is never a literal beast okay so let me just say I'm being very fair here with revelation much of revelation is symbolic the question is how symbolic and I believe that this concept of a key is not a literal key it is representative as we've already seen in revelation of authority when he opened the abyss again authority when he opened the abyss smoke which would represent the torment that's in the abyss smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic what? furnace Furnace. again a picture of the torment in Tartarus the sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss immediately after leaving the abyss they encounter the human physical realm the sun and the sky it goes on and out of the smoke locusts came I do not understand these as literal locusts I don't understand them as super cool weaponized (coughs) helicopters Um, that is what um, people holding a certain view of Revelation believe Um, not all of them but that's how uh, in late great planet earth I remember the man's name. Hal Lindsey, thank you. That's how he interprets this. And I would say it's just completely unsubstantiated. Even how he describes it in a paragraph I'm not going to read. The next paragraph. You cannot understand this as a helicopter. How will you understand it? What comes out of the abyss? Demons come out of the abyss all the time. Okay? We don't find anything in the abyss or the arid places or targets other than demons. Okay? So I think I'm, I'm being very fair with the text by saying that these locusts are demons. They came up down upon the earth. So now they're entering into the physical realm of where man lives. And were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. I'm going to come back to that. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree. Again, the reason why I don't believe these are literal locusts is because that is what locusts would do. They would harm these things. But they don't do that. Who do they harm? They harm people, okay? But only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Unbelievers, okay? Believers are sealed with the, uh, with the seal of God. Verse 5, they were not given the power to kill. Can I just say this? That throughout the Gospels, never do we see a demon killing a man. It appears that they attempt to. They throw them into water, fire. They cut themselves. The, de- the gathering demoniac cuts himself. Um, but they do not kill them. Um, I I find that interesting. I'm not saying that they absolutely can't, but from what we read in the New Testament, we just never see a demon killing a man. Uh, They were not given the power to kill, but only to torture or torment them for five months. Five months, let's not get overly focused on this, five months is simply the season in which locusts, physically locusts, can do damage. Okay, because of the season, the life, the, the length of a, a locust life and feeding and such, um, and when they would do this and when a plague of locusts would come, it's generally viewed as about five months. And I think that's all that he's saying here, that this is going to be a plague. I'm, con- I'm seeing this as demonization. 
It's going to be an unusual demonization for a season. I'm not going to say five specific months, but for a season, a while, a time, however long that would be. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. I'm going to come back to that as I said. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. Those who are demonized, the gathering demoniac, incredibly demonized, he cuts himself. The boy in Mark 9, the father says he has seizures, he foams at the mouth, excessive drooling, and he, the demon throws him into the water and the fire, never kills him, but it's almost as if there's something inside the demon that wants this but can't do it. All right, I think that's a that's a fair way of assessing uh, what's what's going on in the Gospels, and and I do see a parallel here. Um, During those days, men will seek death but will not find it, and they will long to die, but death will elude them. Later on, it it says, um, verse ten, they had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. The the demons torture their um, the people that they are inhabiting. They torment them, either physically, mentally, emotionally. In some way, they torment them. I have seen this in my own personal experience in demonization and casting out demons. There is always torment associated with it, especially when you're casting the demon out. Um, the the idea Matthew 18 in the parable that Jesus gives if you refuse to forgive so this the person who refuses to give has an issue of anger that leads to bitterness in your anger do not sin do not give the devil a foothold okay This anger has led to bitterness, unforgiveness. Jesus says in the parable, in parabolic language, he says that the man like this is given over to the tormentors. And he says jailers, but the Greek word here is jailers who torment or torture. And my question is, okay, why would Jesus even introduce this in his parable? Why would he do that? except for us to understand that when we choose to not forgive and we hold that grudge and we become bitter, we open ourselves up to, de- to demonization that will torment us. What? Okay, I think it's a very fair interpretation. Many theologians uh, hold to that view. This is not, I'm, I'm not in left field with this. And I'm going to encourage you to be a good Berean and test this yourself. Is it not a fair interpretation what of that passage? passage in that Matthew? Matthew 18, the very last few verses that speaks of this. He concludes with, if you refuse to forgive, even my Heavenly Father will refuse to forgive you. Okay. I I, want to come back to this concept of the sting of a scorpion. I decided to do a little bit of research and and I'm trying to do fair research. I did not look at any theologians um, until I had done this research. Um, But there are plenty of theologians that view this passage of Revelation 9 as demonization, okay? Or these, these um, locusts as demons tormenting man. The sting of a scorpion. Did you realize that the most venomous scorpion, there are about 1,500 species of scorpions, 30 of which are, um, their sting 
is very venomous and can severely affect you. The others, it's far less harmful. So about 30 of them. Of those 30, the most deadly uh, scorpion, his name is the Israeli Deathstalker, otherwise known as the Palestine Yellow Scorpion. Okay? Now, he doesn't just live in Palestine or Israel. He lives in Egypt and Ethiopia and throughout the Middle East. Okay? Very, very common, uh, very deadly, venomous scorpion that obviously John would know about. So when he's talking about the, the sting of a scorpion, he could easily, could easily have this particular one in mind. Let me tell you this. Um, that... Rarely do you die from the sting of a scorpion. It's, it's very rare. You, you, if you do die, it is almost always because of an allergic reaction. It is not because of the venom or poison itself. So it normally will not kill a healthy adult human. It can kill a child, and so the child will tend to have excessive symptoms. Those symptoms, uh, when you're stung by one of these scorpions is excessive salivation seizures it says here a child's symptoms and again in an adult the adult would resemble these symptoms just not uh, to the degree as a child would but it says here this is from uh, a uh, web page called Medscape it says a child's symptoms have been described as inconsolable crying, uncontrollable jerking of the extremities and chaotic thrashing, flailing and writhing combined with contorted facial grimaces. The symptoms mimic a central mediated seizure, but the patient is awake and alert the entire time. And I'm going to just leave that for you to sort through. My question is, why would he use this concept of the, the sting of a scorpion unless... Perhaps he knew these symptoms of the sting of a scorpion, and since this is symbolic language, it would paint a very vivid picture of demonization. And so as we're testing this, and am I being fair with the text? That's, that's for you to decide. I believe I am, but you can study this yourself. If it's true that when they come out of the abyss, it is only to demonize, we do see that, I believe, in Revelation chapter 9. Okay. Now again, this has implications for Revelation 20, but kind of tuck that away and we'll look at that when we come to the concept of the millennium. Okay. Well, let's go on. Uh, wonderful. I've got 20 minutes to cover a lot of ground. Okay. Turn to Mark chapter 1. What I want to do right now is I want us to look at a few um, encounters that Jesus has with demons and see what happens here. In Mark chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit, and in what he's saying there is, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I don't have my Greek word written down here. I thought I did. I'm not sure if that's the word for demonizomai uh, or just has a demon. Regardless, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. His fear, I'm going to suggest here, is he's being demonized and his fear is that he's going to have to go into the abyss 
where there is excessive torture, and at least in the man there is some semblance of rest. So he does not want to be tortured again as he was before. He wants his rest, if you will, by demonizing this man who presently is in the synagogue. Interesting. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Okay? Uh, Jesus commands, the spirit obeys. There are no affirmations that Jesus allows from this demon. He shuts him up. Um, The demon does speak some truth here. He's speaking to Jesus. Remember, Satan's the father of lies, but he does speak a truth here. You're the Holy One from God. But he does not not want the demon to say any more because he does not want people to be slanted by what this demon is saying. And personally, I don't believe we should ever trust a demon. Mm -hmm. Don't ask a a demonized person questions. So why why did you get there to begin with? Why are you here? He's probably going to lie. Because if you discover why he's there, you're going to minister to that person in that specific area. And it's very possible that demons have names, even as Legion did, and those names may correspond to certain sin issues. I found that to be the case in, in my personal experience, but I'm not going to teach my experience as truth, but I have seen that to be the case. And if it is, then you're going to end up ministering to this person in that area of lust, sexual immorality, the occult, bitterness, uh, which, by the way, are the three main ways in which people are yield their authority. Bitterness, the occult, and sexual immorality. Those are the three main ways. I'm not going to suggest that they're the only ways by any means. But I think we're going to see here a sense of yielding of authority, but Jesus takes that authority, commands it to leave, and it must go. It must. Um, Mark 9, turn there with me quickly. Forgive me as I go through this quickly. Um, that wasn't my intention, but I realize that I have, uh, I'm running out of time here. I have preached on this passage within the last few months, so I'm not going to get into it in detail. But let me just say this, that the boy, excuse me, the demon throws the boy into convulsions or seizures. He falls to the ground, he rolls, flails around, and he foams at the mouth. The exact description of what I just read concerning the symptoms of this particular Israeli death stalker venom. Um, Again, take that as you will. Uh, How long has he been like this from childhood? Skipping down, Jesus addresses him as a deaf and mute spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Again, Jesus is not sending him to the abyss, but he's saying never enter him, this boy, again. And that is a command, and I would venture to say that the demon had to obey. All right? Now, it could be more than one demon. He's addressed in the singular, demon, but then so is the Gadarene demoniac. The demon spoke out of him. The demon regularly did this, that, or the other to the man, and it's in the singular, but we know that there were many demons in the man. So it could be that there are many demons in this boy. The disciples come to him afterwards in verse 28 and say, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus' response was, this kind, and that word kind is in the Greek, it's a fair translation, this kind can come out only by prayer. Um, Because, yeah, let me not get into that. Um, some translations like the King James read prayer and fasting let let me not get into that if you don't mind but I would suggest that it is prayer definitely 
Um, and if you find a demon that does not come out of a person, and I've encountered this, um, set aside time for prayer and fasting. And my own personal experience is when we come back to this person, because afterwards they say that they still have not felt relief from this demon, uh, this control. And when we fasted and prayed, and there were a couple of us, and we cast the demon out, the demon did go, and he truly was set free. Okay, and this was a, this was a spirit of anger that was in this person controlling them. All right, they had been to some degree abused um, verbally and physically as a, a boy, um, and it was it would manifest in uncontrollable rage. Um, but he came to Christ. We walked him through this deliverance, and he was set free. Okay, so what is this kind? He may be talking about a specific type of demon, like a demon of lust or a, a demon that just is a demon of being deaf and mute, okay? Uh, is he talking about how the demon afflicts the person? Is he talking about how many demons is in the person? Is he talking about the length of time? Because this, this, this boy had a demon in him since he was a child, which I would venture to say, I mean, to what do, when do you call um, a child a boy? Um, probably when he's in his teen years, Maybe some speculation in that part, but he does say he's been demonized since childhood, so he's not a child anymore. Um, so this boy is a young man, and which is also a fair translation of the Greek there. He, he has been demonized, I would venture to say, for at least 10 years. I'm just kind of throwing a number out there, but I think that's a fair estimate. Um, it could be 5, it could be 15 or 20. The truth is, we don't know how the demon got there, and rarely does the Bible ever even touch on that. And I would venture to say the focus of Scripture is always on the authority of Jesus Christ exercised uh, in this person's life to see them set free. Um, okay. Mark chapter 5, um, that is the gathering demoniac, that's number 3 there. Let me pause for a moment to see if there's anything new I want to uh, add to that. Here's something that I have personally observed in my study of this topic. I find only one time, that would be Acts 16, and I'm not even sure about this, but in Acts, in every case, except perhaps Acts 16, the person who is set free from the demon does so because he comes to Jesus. There is a desire to be set free. The gathering demoniac, the man runs to Jesus, and the demons, I believe, speak out of him. I don't believe it was the man that was speaking out of him, it was the demons. There is a desire to be set free. Why would demons controlling a man run to Jesus? There is no explanation. Why would you run to the very thing that will get rid of you and send you back into the abyss? No explanation. I see this only as the man wanting freedom, running to Jesus because he wants to be set free. But when he comes to Jesus, the demons throw him down. Or maybe he does that voluntarily as a cry for help. But the demons seize control, speak out of him, and the man loses control at this point. So demons do not control 100% of the time. 
But there is this desire to be set free. When demons are set free, people bring them to Jesus. People brought them to Philip in Acts 8. They were, the demons were cast out. They were set free. Many of them uh, healed because there were also physical maladies associated with their demonization. But there is a desire, it seems, to be set free. The only exception, again, Acts 16, the woman with, with the Greek, in the Greek it says a python spirit. The python spirit was associated with the oracle of Delphi, so it had to do with predicting the future. So in the NIV, that's how it's translated, a woman who could predict the future. But literally, it's a python spirit. I would venture to say that perhaps Luke is using this term. And by the way, whenever authors of the New Testament borrow from secular sources, uh, like the word Tartarus, it is a Greek mythological term. But let's realize they, the word logos is also a Greek term, but they redefine it. Even the word theos is a Greek mythological term, not used very much like Zeus and Deus were used, but theos was somewhat... I have read somewhat of a dead term, and so the, the Septu, authors of the Septuagint, uh, a couple hundred years before Christ, latched onto this term as the best one that we can pour our understanding of who Yahweh is. And so they use that term, Theos, to now describe God. Okay, We see that in many languages. The term good uh, for, in German is more closely related to our term God, but again, it is the... It is a term, a secular term that we have borrowed and now poured biblical definition into it. And this concept of a python spirit, I believe, is the same way. I don't believe that um, that the uh, that it's necessarily a, a associated with a python. It certainly would strangle and therefore control the victim if you could see it that way, and and therefore speak through them but specifically towards about predicting the future. This woman said, uh, here are men who are telling you the way to be saved. And she followed them. And I have to ask, because this would be the one exception, why would she want to follow them? Why would she want that? Was there not some desire, perhaps, on her part to be free? But the demon, even as in the demoniac, the demon spoke out of her. Rather uh, sarcastically, these men are telling you the way to be saved. Well, this is a demonized woman, um, and they're telling about these people who are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul said, I don't want demons to credit our ministry in any way. If anything, it has the potential to discredit it. Paul turns around and commands the demon to come out. The demon comes out. She's no longer able to predict the future, apparently, and her owners lose money, and they throw Paul and Silas into jail. So, um, even in this case, it appears, and I am speculating, but it does appear that this woman is wanting some freedom. The demons are still controlling and speak out of her, however. Here's my point. To be set free from demons, my understanding from the New Testament is there has to be a desire to be set free. Okay? The man in the synagogue was there not just because he was a Jew, but because there was at least a latent desire to be set free. He still wanted, if not you know, a personal, at least a religious connection with God. Um, otherwise, he would have not gone to synagogue. He would... Uh, and, and So anyways, um, to be set free, I do believe that there must be a desire in that person's part.
Um, I've already mentioned that, like in number four, Matthew twelve twenty-two, Luke eleven fourteen, that there is many times a physical ailment associated with the demonization, not just a mental, emotional, spiritual um, infliction, but many times also a physical infliction. I do believe we see a variety or a range, a continuum of control from minor control to extensive control. That is due to the type of demon or the number of demons, um, how the demon can afflict them. Maybe it has to do with the demon's rank, and that is a biblical concept. Remember, in Ephesians, yeah, Ephesians chapter 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers and the authorities. That tells me that there is a hierarchy within the demonic realm. The fact that this man would have a demon called Legion that would apparently oversee them and speaks on their behalf tells me that there's a hierarchy. Demons command demons. If you were to read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, he plays up on this, and the underling Wormwood uh, is being instructed. It is Wormwood, isn't it? Yes. I haven't read it in decades. But he's instructed in how to grow in his ability to tempt and afflict. Uh, I don't know if C.S. Lewis gets into demonization or not. Um, I want to be careful in this concept of demonization, Jesus does cast the demon out, but um, does that necessarily mean that the demon is in them? Is the demon on them? Um, wow, what is the author's name? Peretti, Frank Peretti, views a demon with on the person's head with his, uh, his nails and feet clutched into the person's head to control his mind. I'm not really concerned how we're going to view this, but let's understand that there is an element of control, okay? <clears throat> I want to say this. When I have walked people through deliverance, um, I have found it very effective, and I, I, I don't want to say that my experience has been just with unbelievers or just with Christians. It has been always those who are a part of the church but have been demonized. Were they saved? Were they not uh, an issue? I do believe, though, that Christians can be demonized. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that they can't. When you start holding, grasping at straws concerning uh, demon possession as demons <laughs> possessing a man, that is not what this term means. That is a fabricated concept that people have associated with demon possession because they've misunderstood the term. Um, ownership is not a part of here, of this. Control is. Okay? Were Ananias and Sapphira saved? You, we can debate about that, but... Paul, Peter asked them, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Um, and even Peter, a follower of Christ, Jesus turns around and he doesn't speak to Peter, though he is looking at him. He turns around and speaking to Peter says to Satan or to a demon that's speaking out of Satan, out of Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but only the things of man. Who was it that was speaking out of Peter? It was Satan, or a demon associated with Satan. And Jesus was exercising authority, rebuking that demon by what he said, and silencing him, 
because he had some element of control in Peter's life at that point. And I would venture to say that if we're going to associate this with uh, demonization, granted uh, on a continuum lower control, because we don't see lots of manifestations in Peter's life, there is this sense of selfish ambition. If you were to continue on in that chapter, that's exactly what you see. Peter's saying um, in, Jesus, in his interaction with Jesus, you see this selfish ambition emerge. Actually, they talk about who will be in the greatest in the kingdom um, several times. And I've walked you through that in, in some sermons recently. So that may very well have been the foothold, the angle in which uh, the devil was able to control Turn with me, because I need to conclude this time together. Uh, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, we come across this idea in... Let me get my bearings here. Verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon... Your anger. That means don't let anger incubate. Don't let it stay there. There is something about anger when it simmers and incubates. When you send a child to their room for time out and they're filled with anger, um, I, 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 I don't think that time out is a biblical concept, but I do believe a time away from a heated discussion, specifically like between husband and wife, can be good because nothing can, good can come from a heated argument, okay? Allow yourself to calm down, but come back and deal with the problem. Don't let it simmer, okay? Don't let the, the problem simmer. Um, if our anger can simmer in a child, in an adult, and this is what Paul is addressing, don't let your anger simmer. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Deal with it. He says, so in your anger don't sin. So there is a righteous anger, but there is also a sinful anger. And do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And and again, uh, I believe that he is not specifically referring to the devil, but to demons in general. Again, the devil is not omnipresent. By giving the devil a foothold, some translate this word foothold it is the Greek word tapos. Okay? That means literally a place, but it is used, it has a wide range of meanings. One of those ranges, one of those ranges of meanings is in it with a military term, a concept. Um, you can agree or disagree with me on this. I do not believe that he is talking about an opportunity. He is talking about a locale here, a place. It is not translated opportunity. He's not saying by yielding to anger, you're giving the devil an opportunity. Though there's truth in that, Paul is teaching you are giving the devil a place. How are you giving him a place, a locale? I I, I think it's a very fair understanding to see this concept of tapos in a military term because this is our battle is not against flesh and blood and he just he mentions that just two chapters later so I'm being fair in Ephesians he talks about the devil in the context of a spiritual battle I think it's fair then 
to, as you're reading, how does top, how is tapas used to associate it with this military usage? And that would be something similar to a beachhead. And when in the storming of Normandy, they gained a beachhead by gaining the beach. Thousands of lives were lost in the process, but by gaining the beachhead, they gained entrance into France and eventually stormed Germany and won World War II. They defeated Germany. But it started by a beachhead, a foothold, if you will, a place, a military base of operations, if you will. And this is what Paul is getting at, and he is associating this now with anger. So anger, simmering, we would say, uh, then perhaps bitterness is associated here, as we saw in Matthew 18, bitterness, the servant, the parable in which the servant was unwilling to forgive. And so consequently, authority has been yielded, and he is speaking to Christians here. Don't give the devil a foothold. Now, can I say that as I've walked people through deliverance, I realize that I'm not the only one in this time together that has the authority of Christ. If this is a Christian, they have authority too. James 4 says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. That word resist is oppose. It's forceful. It's an encounter. All right? We see power encounters when Jesus casts demons out of people who are in the world. And he commands them in Jesus' name, come out, and there's a power encounter. I believe, though, and you can read the book... Um, <coughs> Ah, goodness. Um, The Bondage Breaker by Neil Anderson. He speaks of a truth encounter. And this is something that, in my own experience, as I've read through the word, truth is what overcomes the kingdom of darkness. It is what displaces the very weaponry of Satan, which is lies, accusations, false accusations to the Christians. Truth, when Jesus encountered the devil in temptation, he used truth, scripture. Truth is what displaces the enemy. Truth is what will overcome the enemy should he gain a beachhead in the Christian's life. We need to be saturated with truth. If we give the devil a foothold, we are permitting him to control us. We need to saturate ourselves with truth. And not just mentally, but as I spoke last night, it needs to percolate into our heart so it controls the way we live. Okay, the choices that we make. And so if we as Christians want to see the enemy removed from that foothold, that place in our life, we do so with truth. So I will tell the person, I'll read scripture to them. I will declare over them certain scriptures that would, uh, I have felt would conflict with the lies that they have heard and believed that they're ugly, that they are perverts, that when they were raped it was their fault. A vast number of lies. I, I can't help it. I can't do anything other than this sin. That is a lie because when the Spirit of God gets a hold of us, we can walk out of that prison. There are no shackles on us. We have the authority to do that. So as I teach them, I just declare these truths over them and then I have them Repent, renounce, and rebuke. Repent, renounce. Renouncing is similar to repenting, but it is more in declarative form. 
I will have nothing to do with this sin of lust. I will have nothing to do with this sin of bitterness. I leave it behind and I am determined, Jesus, to follow you. And then I encourage them, now open your eyes, because I personally don't like bowing my head when I'm addressing a demon. There's no need to. Um, Open your eyes, and I want you to rebuke the devil and command him to leave your life right now. Speak it with authority. Even as a veteran policeman stands in a street, holds out his hand, blows the whistle, no intimidation uh, like a novice might have, but he blows the whistle hard, and he definitely expects those cars to stop. If he didn't, he wouldn't be standing in their pathway. That type of faith, that type of boldness, that type of um, declaration... Uh, command the devil to leave. And if we need to fast, we will fast, but he must eventually go. He must. Because he has no authority in the face of the name of Jesus. We stand in power of attorney. Sorry, I'm not going to explain that. I have in past sermons. But we stand in the power of attorney in the name of Jesus and and seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. We possess this authority and this power that in... Um, Matthew or Luke 9 Jesus specifically gives to his apostles and that we ourselves have access to as well power and authority in Jesus name for this reason there is never a need for us to be afraid of the demonic because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world okay and we choose to walk in that not fear not the fear of Satan scripture commands us to have the fear of God and that will empower us to walk in that authority and power to see Satan flee. You rebuke him, he goes. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the victory that is in Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would allow us to walk in that freedom on a daily basis. And where the enemy may have gotten into our lives, rebuke him, God, in Jesus' name. And may the devil flee. May we walk in freedom. May we embrace truth. And may we follow after Jesus with fully surrendered hearts, totally abandoned to his purposes. We obey you, Jesus, and only you. It is only at the name of Jesus that every knee shall bow. In heaven, every demon will bow before the name of Jesus. They will crumple before him and be cast forever into the pits of hell at the end of the age. Because Jesus has ultimate authority and power that he has bestowed upon us as his children and rightful heirs. And I'm asking you, Lord Lord God, give us the faith to walk in this daily, daily, Lord God with truth at our disposal, the sword of the Spirit, to put the enemy to flight and to win the victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.